the 17th of May, for me, is just something that's part of my life that I will never be able to step away from. The 17th of May, 1974, was a warm summer's day. A brief glance at the front page of the Irish Times that day tells us that the North was virtually shut down due to strikes conducted by the Ulster Workers' Council. On the letters page of that same newspaper, the bus strike is discussed, as are the subjects of shared schools and electing for Europe. A four-bedroomed house in Port Marnock by the sea could be purchased for £10,500. Fianna Fáil were to have their annual Churchgate collection the following Sunday. Waterloo by Abba was heading for the top spot in the music charts. In the late afternoon, however, the lives of 34 people would be viciously taken in four no-warning car bomb attacks, three occurring in Dublin and one in Monaghan. It was the greatest loss of life in the entire Troubles and was quickly forgotten by many. For the survivors of that day, however, and those who lost loved ones, the 17th of May will always be etched on their mind. Liam Sullivan, Bernie McNally and Phil Lawler-Watson are all survivors of the Dublin bombs. Paddy Askin lost his father, Paddy Senior, in the Monaghan Town bomb. Here, they tell their story of that May day. In 1974, the 17th of May, I was working in my hairdressing saloon in Parnell Street at the time. My brother had been doing some sign writing on the outside of the shop at the time, just, just before the bomb went off. We were walking away and anyhow, and a friend of mine walked into the shop, who I trained with at the martial arts, with his two sons, Edward O'Neill and Billy O'Neill. Edward was a good friend of mine, their father. Um, but for the fact that he knew me, he wouldn't have been in the shop on that day. One of the kids were making a Holy Communion and uh, he decided to bring them down to my place. And we were talking about the, the week's training at the martial arts and um, just when the kids' hair were finished, the whole lot, Eddie was going outside and uh, I, I gave the kids a few bob, you know. And Eddie in turn turned around to me and gave me a tip. And just as he walked out the door, the explosion occurred and the door was blown off its hinges. Eddie w- was killed and his two children were, were badly damaged, very badly, severely damaged. My, my brother that evening, he uh, he decided to go, go down. The fact that he had been working on the front of the shop, the hairdressers earlier on, he said he dropped back down to see how everything was. And Eamon, he never quite came to terms with that, you know. And he, he became uh, quite unstable over the years and this and that. And, uh, eventually he ended up committing suicide last year. Eamon did, you know. Going back to the day in question, uh, but for the fact that we had perspex in the front of the shop, Instead of glass, it didn't shatter, but it came in. A piece of the car, actually, a piece of steel came in, cut through the top of my head and went into the wall. And I was, I, I was, my head was severely cut open in that type of thing. And the, whole, the whole thing was devastate, devastation, you know. I was actually bending down to, to put a plug in, take a plug out, because we were that busy on the day in question that we actually ran out of towels, and we were trying to dry towels in the shop. And just as he was going out, I, I pulled the plug out. Of course, the explosion was so intense, the eardrums nearly burst, you know. I, I remember hearing afterwards that, as Eddie was just going outside the shop, one of the buttons of his coat popped out. So his two boys bent down to pick it up, so most of the, the, the effect of the bomb went over them, although they were severely damaged. 
But they did escape the worst part of it. But unfortunately for Eddie, Eddie, Eddie didn't escape it, you know. Eddie was actually blown into the Westbrook garage next door to me. I ran out. When I ran out, his clothes was half tore off him and the whole lot. I was in a panic. There was people all outside the shop in bits. And a friend of mine, Derek Bourne, who was a petrol pump attendant at the time, I think he was only 14 or 15 at the time, you know. I ran straight over to him. One of the, the, the pumps seemed to be stuck in his shoulder, you know. Of course, I brought out the towels and the whole lot. She was he okay, and he was, he was in an awful state. Young Derek was. His face was badly scarred, there was blood everywhere and the whole lot. I remember helping him to that extent, right? But Derek always swears to this day that I, I actually took the pump out of him or whatever. Yeah, I can't recall that, but you can imagine I was in shock at the time. There was nothing to do when he tried to run out of the streets. My father was there at the time. He was he was in the shop at the time and he was in shock and the whole lot. And there was another man. My father actually knew his name was Faye, Mr. Faye. He was outside. I think he died at the petrol pump. It was like a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. And there was bodies, people lying everywhere, jumping over, bodies getting out, getting out of the place. You know, the street was an extremely busy street. There'd be people walking on the, on the road. The mind the paths, it was that busy. It's just when you, it was just silence after the whole thing. We ran out and there was people crying and screaming, and like you know, silence compared to being busy, like. And everybody was so much in shock. Nobody really knew what what, what happened, you know. And then I, th- I think we heard another explosion somewhere else going off. What I've seen, I've had to live with all my life, and I've, to this day, I'm, I'm still living with it. You know, I've never got over it. The thing that always stayed with me was the fact that only for Eddie, Edward O'Neill knew me so well, he wouldn't have been down there. That it's been hard to live with the fact that, you know, but for the fact that he knew me, he wouldn't have been there, you know. And I've been trying to live with that as well. I know his sons well, and oh, I know the family very well, and they've, they've, they've never got over it, never. Never come to terms with it, you know. On the 17th of May, 1974... I was a 16-year-old girl working in O'Neill's shoe shop on Talbot Street. It was coming up to 25 past five in the evening. And I was in a rush to get out of the shop, to go home for the evening. I went down the stairs to get my coat to go home just after half five, and one of the girls said I'd better go back up onto the floor. And as I went up, a late customer came into the shop. She needed pair of sandals that weren't in stock so I went down to the cellar, down to the storeroom to get the sandals. I was rushing down because I was in such a hurry to go home and as I got to the storeroom door I heard the first bomb explode on Parnell Street. It stopped me in my tracks but I didn't understand or have any comprehension of the damage a bomb could do. I went on into the store and I got the sandals and I left, came back up the stairs. And as I got onto the ground floor, I met May McKenna. May McKenna lived in a flat over the shop. And she was at home that evening because she worked in Cleary's and Cleary's were on strike at the time. She was standing at the door, the Georgian door between the two shops, out onto the street. And she was standing with Mr O'Neill and she said to me, did I hear a bomb going off? I said, yeah, I think it was a bomb. And as I stepped away from her, I took maybe two steps away from her and the second bomb exploded. 
In May, was killed. Mr O'Neill was seriously injured. The late customer in the shop was killed and I was seriously injured. When the bomb exploded, well, just, just before I think it exploded, there was a big flash in the sky and I remember looking up into the sky, but I, I don't ever remember looking back down again. Um, the blast caught me and threw me onto the floor. I could feel all the debris falling on top of me and the ground vibrating violently. Although there was a lot of objects falling on me, I didn't, they weren't hurting me, but I could just feel them falling on me. The ground vibrated for a long time. Now, that might have been a minute, it might have been two minutes, it might have been five, I really don't know, but when I was on the ground, it seemed like a long time. And I remember forcing open my eyes at one stage to see what was happening because I never lost consciousness. I couldn't see anything. Eventually the the ground started to settle down again, things stopped falling and things began to settle. And as I went to get up onto my feet, the ground was very unsteady. I was there was lots of rubble under me or debris underneath me. So it wasn't the same floor that I had left five minutes earlier. It was now more like a building site. Although I couldn't see it, I could feel it. And I could hear somebody groaning very weakly. I went, grappled around on my hands and knees, trying to find her. I asked her to um, try and groan a bit louder so I might be able to find her, but I couldn't. And then I realised maybe I could be kneeling on her. So I said, maybe I better go and get help for us. And when I stood up to go leave the shop, I realised I couldn't see. My sight was gone completely. I didn't panic. I was very calm. Obviously, I was very shocked. I remember just saying, Jesus, I'm not blind. Lord Jesus, don't let me be blind. And as I just said those words, the sight started to come back in my left eye. And it came back slowly from the ground upwards it lifted that way and when I looked around the debris and to be transported from the world which is normal to you into what was like hell within minutes was absolutely horrific I did feel very frightened and I remember stepping out into the street and the silence in the street was, you could nearly feel the silence. It was like a thick silence. It, it's the only way I can try and describe it to you. The dust in the street. It was just such a neary feeling. And then I saw people scattered around on the ground. and But I had no comprehension that these people were dead. I don't know what I thought. I remember looking at some stage, I don't know at what stage it was at, a guy in his window, and I saw a fireman taking, obviously it was a lady's body, um, out of the window. She was draped across his two arms, but I thought it was 
a mannequin that they were taken out at the time in case they got broken because it's just such a surreal thing that you're looking on it it's like you're looking on a television program that, that you're not part of this um eventually a policeman came along and he asked me who else was in the shop and another bloke came along from the educational company <coughs> Tony O'Connor and he took me down to Moran's Hotel and it was down there that I met a doctor there was some people already had in there and the doctor came over and he began to bandage up my head I, I remember him shouting at one of the girls to get sheets and the young girl running off to get sheets and I remember him tearing the sheet but I didn't realise it was for me that he was tearing it to put it around my head I don't remember him actually bandaging up my head but I remember when he was finished and saying does that feel better and, and I remember the comfort I felt in my head because I had a, a big wound in my head although my clothes were full of blood I, I didn't realise it was my blood um, then somebody came in and said if anybody could walk there was a coach outside to take us to Patrick Dunn's hospital there was no emergency services at the time to take us to the hospital because of the Parnell Street bomb the Leinster Street bomb so Tobbs seemed to be just stuck in the middle and were short of ambulances for some length of time so this man Kevin Rowe had the presence of mind he came on on the scene in Talbot Street when he saw the carnage and the devastation he ran back to Bosaris and he took a coach from there he filled the coach with all the injured people and he took us to Patrick Dunn's hospital I think panic began to set in when I was on the bus I remember having just such a need to get off that bus and to go home and I thought if I could get home that everything would be all right. Life would go on the same as normal. But I knew that bus wasn't taking me home. On the 17th of May 1974, I was finishing my work in my office in Trouble Arms, South Leinster Street. I was very happy because it was the weekend and I was looking forward to two days off and it was nice weather. However, as there was a bus strike at the time, I was getting a lift from one of our um, fleet of van drivers. And I sat in the car and waited uh, with my friend Patricia, who was also working with me. Eventually, the driver, Jack, came out and uh, turned the key in the ignition. And immediately, there was a massive explosion. The car shook and rocked. Jack's glasses were knocked off his face and his head was injured. Uh, my comrade beside me, Patricia, just dived out of the car, head first over the seat. She didn't wait for the door to be opened. She dropped her denim bag on the side of the street beside the car and ran screaming down the street. And I felt immediately, this is a bomb, there is a panic, and this is the time when people do weird things and steal and loot. So I just got out of the car for a second and took Patricia's bag so as it would be safe. And then I sat in the car and I just sat. I had waited to feel some terrible cutting or 
a bang to my body or to see my leg going away or to see my arm going away. But nothing happened except that my hair was full of glass. The car was afterwards written off. My ears were full of glass. And I just sat there. I still, I was in shock, I guess. So after some time, which to me seemed like a half an hour, but it was really only minutes, the driver of the car came back and he pulled me out of the car and said, Phil, Phil, come in quickly. There's going to be another explosion. So then I jumped out of the car and I ran into what was our office and all of the entry was gone. We had a high security risk in trouble arms. So when we went in or went out, we had a code number. Now the whole place was wide open. And I went in and there was a, a young girl, maybe 18, and she was lying on the floor on her back. Now, the reason I think it was some time later was because the first aid guys from Trinity were actually looking after this lady. The back, she had no clothes from her waist down. The back of the calf of one of her legs was actually gone. And I thought, well, she's going to lose a leg. One of her thumbs was injured as well, but not too badly. So I decided, you know, that she's going to lose her leg, but at least she's alive. She was talking. She was moaning. She was asking for her, uh, for her mommy. And she wanted water. So I immediately went down to our kitchen. I knew where the water was. And I gave her the glass of water and she took it from me. And then we were all called down to what was then Powers Hotel in Kildare Street. And um, we met first aid people and journalists and all that. And I was in an absolute haze. At this point, the shock was setting in. And I began to tremble a bit and I, I felt very frightened and I didn't know what was going to happen. Eventually I was taken home to my apartment by whom I haven't a clue. It could have been anyone. And I was left in my apartment. I lived in a bed sit in Dufferin Avenue. I went into the bed sit and I just got up on the bed and I pulled my knees up to my stomach and I just sat there. And I couldn't cry, I couldn't move, I couldn't get out to make a cup of tea, I could do nothing. I was terrified. My hair was still standing straight up on my head. And my ears, I tried to get some of the glass out of my ears. And my face was smeared in black. I had just one cut on my finger and I had a, a small cut here on my rib cage. I was wearing a red shirt and the shirt was cut as well. And that I remember, I can remember clearly that shirt with the, the cut in it. Sometime later, my sister came. She'd cycled across from Kerry's Fort Avenue. And she came, she'd heard it on the news. And she tried to get through the city on her bike, but it was very difficult. So she came to me. And later, my, a former employer of mine called as well. And they took me into the hospital. I think it was the Meath, but I'm not absolutely sure of that. I just know it was a new hospital I'd never been in before. And I could recall a nurse saying, we have one of the bomb victims. And I was kind of saying, this is kind of funny because he's going to think he'll see someone with no legs or no arms. He did physically examine me and talk to me and gave me sedation. And I went home. And I was out of it for that night and a lot of the next day. In due course, I went back to work. And I spoke to my boss about how he had been on holidays. And I spoke to him about the trauma and about this girl. But to this day, I do not know. I've never heard about her. Actually, I do know she didn't die because she's not listed as one of the dead. 
But it is my feeling that she was badly injured and is somewhere, but has never come forward. And still, even to this day, I have nightmares about that bang. Not too long ago, about six months ago, I woke up suddenly in the middle of the night. I heard this really loud bang at the end of my bed. And I thought, oh my God. And then I woke up and it was just a dream. That's all it was. Um, I still am on... Um, I went to counselling about two, three years ago because I suffer from claustrophobia, which I feel is a result of this. I also was getting panic attacks and I couldn't stay in one room. I couldn't go into a place of entertainment. Even to go shopping, I would go into the store, immediately look for the exit and I sort of would be so unhappy that I would leave it. I just couldn't cope with it. Now, I've more or less come over that. Sitting in a bus was a nightmare for me. Walking down the street from the bus to my place of work was a nightmare. I found that very difficult for the first weeks afterwards. And uh, gradually I just came to terms with it. On the 17th of May, 1974, my mother and myself had been in the kitchen of the house well, I was watching her preparing the dinner and we heard a bang. Uh, the window of the kitchen vibrated. Uh, we knew it was uh, an explosion of some sort. Uh, uh, there was, I don't think there was any quarries about there at the time, so it couldn't have been that. Uh, well, I really passed no remarks after that, but my mother did. She panicked straight away, you know. She said, uh, I think she says, oh, your father, you know. And uh, it was a while later she heard a, a news flash on the radio about an explosion in Monaghan and that there was people hurt and injured and stuff, you know. Uh, and by this time, my father, he was due home from work, uh, but he hadn't been home, so... Ma got one of the neighbours to bring us up in their car, you know. The whole lot of us went. Uh, went straight to the hospital. Uh, but we weren't allowed in, the children weren't allowed anywhere near the hospital. Uh, my mother went in on her own. Uh, it was a good while later now, she came out in bad shape, like, you know, she had to be helped out, like, crying and stuff. Uh, so we just came on down the road home again, no sign of Daddy at all. Uh, whenever she first went into the hospital, somebody had said Paddy was all right. He was helping with injured and casualties and stuff. Uh, but then a while later, a surgeon had seen my mother looking for Daddy and he told her there was nothing could be done for him, you know, he was dead. He worked in Monaghan town in Patton Sawmills and he used to get his check changed in Grayson's pub on a Friday evening and he would have a couple of pints before he'd come home anyway. So that's why he would have been in the pub at that time. I was almost seven and my younger brother, Paul, he was almost six. And two twin sisters, they were two. They were wondering where Daddy was, you know, and why he wasn't home, like. 
uh, we didn't know what to do, you know. We weren't sort of sat down and talked to, you know, this is what's happening or anything like that. Basically worked it out. Nobody actually sat us down and says, your father has been in an accident or anything or been in an explosion and he's dead, you know. Uh, we weren't told that. But when you sort of knew by looking at my, you know, her emotions like she was in a bad state like basically felt couldn't do anything you know I, I sort of withdrew into myself a bit you know became very quiet then you know I've basically stayed quiet since we made our way up to the Richmond hospital oh, Jesus that was like a slaughterhouse altogether you know you couldn't believe what you seen it was dreadful. It, it was like a war zone, you know? There was people everywhere, in the corridors, the whole lot. And there, there, there was the, everybody was in an awful state. And there was blood everywhere. And I went in and I was kept there for a couple of nights myself because of the injuries I received to my head, you know? But uh, I was not taken back looking at everybody else. It, it was like, it was just like a dream. Of, everybody was in so much shock, you know? In them days, like there was, there, there was no such a thing as counselling. So um, there was nobody there to, to, like you know, that you could talk to or anything. You just had to live with it, you know. And up to this day, but it, it's, it's only in say the last year, year and a half that I've underwent counselling. That was provided by uh, Justice for the Forgotten campaign. But the thoughts of this young woman who had one sandal, very modern sandal, strapped around her ankle. They were very much in vogue. I mean, I wasn't a, re I wasn't a really young woman at the time, but she was only 18, and I said, you know, she has her life before her. And I, that, to me, was the Dublin man on bombing, that woman who was, and I don't know her, and I'd love to know her, but that was my feeling about it. The bus was full of injured people who were groaning, pain and shock. When the bus pulled into Patrick Dunn's gates, when I went to get off the bus, there was a lady sitting in front of me and her legs were draped across two seats and part of her leg was gone. And I remember being horrified to see that her leg was gone and been very frightened and afraid to pass her by on the bus. So I was blocking everybody else from getting off the bus. But it was only, it only took a moment and then somebody said to me to get off the bus and I did. I went into the hospital and absolutely bedlam in there. There was people injured and it was total chaos. The place was crammed and nobody seemed to know where anybody else was or... Um, I remember being put into a room with, with, with a friend of mine, Roisin, who worked in the shop, and we were told to sit there, and people were coming in and out and asking our name and address and our age, and somebody else would come in a few minutes after, and that went on for a long, long time. Until I got to the stage where I said, I have to go home. I thought my parents were going to be looking for me, and I have got to go home. I didn't realise how injured I was, and... I had superficial wounds to my head and my hip stitched, a couple of stitches in my face and my hand in the hospital. 
um, in, in Patrick Dunn's hospital and then the eye doctor came along and he had a look at me. My dad eventually arrived. We didn't have a phone at the time. And my friend went out and rang my sister to tell her where I was. And she met my dad and they came into the hospital. I was taken from Patrick Dunn's in my dad's car with the doctor and my sister to the INA because they still couldn't get an ambulance at that stage. I went in and eventually I was operated on that night on my eye. I was there for six weeks before they allowed me to come home. When I came out of hospital, the eye was very badly disfigured and there was no sight in it. I went back to the hospital for visits about my eye, but I never had anybody to talk to about what happened or why this thing happened. There was never any more talk about it. It was over and done by the time I came out of hospital. I did not know about the two other bombs. I did not know that there was anything only where I was. And funnily enough, I sh we should have heard them because they would be close enough. But nobody seemed to hear anything. Nobody said anything. And nobody knew anything until we got into our car to go home. I was in a terrible state. I was hunched up on the bed. My knees were stuck up here and my head down and I couldn't cry or I couldn't do anything. The phone in the apartment, there was a general phone outside the flat where the flats were and that was jammed from all people ringing. And I just sat there and sat there and I said, look, I can't sit here. I have to get up. I have to get a cup of tea or I have to get on. And I, and I still couldn't move. And I didn't actually move until my sister came. And then I broke down and I cried a lot and that kind of helped me. But it was... After that, before I went to the hospital, because I didn't go to the hospital about 8 o'clock at night, I felt this kind of a feeling of total unreality. Now, this must be a dream that I was having. I just couldn't take it in that this could have happened and that I had escaped with very minor injuries. I suffered with flashbacks all the time, you know, all the time. And, like, I have reoccurring dreams and the the whole thing and that type of thing, you know, um, which I explained to the counsellor and that type of thing, you know. Look, my fear is always, like, just after the, the bombing was passing, maybe five or six cars together, and I thought I'd never get past them quick enough, you know. Um, panic attacks, I suppose, yeah, without a doubt. Um, also, if any of my family's going into town to this day, I am still very concerned. What time are you coming home at and this type of thing, you know what I mean? It's, it's always there, like, you know? It affects me in different ways. Uh, like, for example, like, if I was out at a party or something like that where there's groups of people and that type of thing, sometimes it gets to me that much that I stick a panic attack. I have to get out. Just get out of it, you know? Just, just It's affecting me like that, you know? Just to get out, get away from everybody. I'm not, in, I'm not into big crowds and that type of thing, you know what I mean? It's, it's one, one, one effect it has on me, you know what I mean? And, and it's as fresh in my mind now as it was 30 years ago, you know? It's just like it happened yesterday, as far as I'm concerned. Every day I think of him, you know? Um, you know, what if, you know, we hadn't have been in the explosion, where would we be now? Uh, you know, would we still be living up in Monaghan and what sort of work would I be doing up there and stuff, you know? But it's all... 
you know, useless thinking, you know. It's from what you can remember, what type of a man was he? Uh, very quiet, good-natured, generous. Like, he always had something home for us virtually every day, you know. We'd wait at the end of the lane for him coming home from work. Uh, on good days, you know, if it was winter, it'd be too dark, you know, he'd be home late and stuff. Uh, but we would never see him going to work. But we would always wait on him coming home up the lane, you know. There was nothing off that at all. Uh, oh, it was strange now. Uh, just from one extreme to the other, where one day we're happy as anything, you know. The next, all was up in the air. It was a life-altering thing for me in the sense that I didn't feel... I loved Dublin. And I loved going out and I loved going to the theatre and I went dancing, went to the cinema and went shopping on a Saturday. And I loved Dublin. But now I just couldn't do that anymore because I was too frightened. If I pushed myself, and I did push myself after, you know, six months, a year, I just got so uptight that it wasn't worth it. And I would sit in a cinema and say, any minute, now any minute, I just can be blown to atoms. And in the end, I wouldn't, I gave it up for quite a while. It was so traumatic. It's 30 years ago. And it is still so vivid and so clear in my mind. Every last detail. And as I say, I still wake up with nightmares. It's not right that it was forgot about for so long and that the investigation was uh, sort of wound up early and forgot about. You know, what uh, What were they thinking of? Like, uh, if it happened in this day and age, there'd be a, there would be no stone left untorned, basically, till they found out who and why and what for, you know, why it was done. Your family were glad that you were running around, that you didn't lose your arms or your legs, or... And they were happy you didn't die. But nobody understood what... what it did to you inside. Just... completely shook... by this terrible event that happened, and... and... Nobody discussed it, nobody spoke about it. I didn't feel a need to speak about it, but I didn't know what was going on inside me at the time. I was very frightened. I was frightened of everything. I didn't sleep for years after. And I mean that literally years. I didn't sleep. I would go to bed at night. And I'd be very tired when I go to bed, but as soon as I get into bed, I'd become wide awake and I'd be terrified. I don't know what I was terrified of, but I would lie there and I would just be sweating in the bed, afraid, afraid of everything, afraid that the window was going to break in on top of you for some unknown reason and just afraid, always afraid, afraid to go beyond, afraid to take chances. I think I lost something when I was 16. Um, I think when you're 16 that you have maybe a sense of adventure. And I lost that because I was always afraid after that. Afraid to go beyond what was just in my everyday life to take a chance to do things. 
to go on holiday with friends even. I was afraid to do those things. To go into unfamiliar circumstances would have been too much. Um, I never realised the amount of people who were killed at the time because nobody spoke about it. I would talk to my mother about um, just about the, the, the ongoing things that would, were going on in the hospital because I went back and forward to the hospital for a long time. And then in 1997 I had to go back because my eyes were starting to give me problems and I went back to a doctor and he said there's nothing he could do for me, that I, the eye was deteriorating and I had to have it removed. So in 1998 I had to have the eye removed, which was 24 years later. The bang is the big thing, because I saw nothing until the bang. I, you know, I, I then I looked and I saw the car was on my left. I was in a double parked vehicle, which brought me out closer to the middle of the street, and the uh, bomb car was down, just a little bit below where I was, but on the other side of the road. So it was very very near. But I've been told since then that the actual the bomb the explosion doesn't gather impact until it's out a bit. And the people, certainly the people who died, were further away than I was. That hadn't gathered its full momentum and that's why I wasn't hurt. Certainly I do often wonder, you know, why I was so close and I didn't get hit. And sometimes I can feel guilty about that. When I think of that young woman who was lying on the floor in chubs with half her leg on, I just feel guilty because she hadn't lived much of her life. I'd lived a bit of mine. And that, that's another problem that you have to overcome. Well, on the 17th of May, that's... It's a real hard day, but every day of the year is hard, you know. I can't say it brings any more emotion on it because uh, it's there all the time anyway, you know, but it's, it's just a focus for their... You know, that day is, you can't really describe it now, it's life changed completely forever, like. Uh, not just mine, the rest of the family and 33 other families. Looking back now at my mother, she done a great job, like, for I'm sure we were we roughens, you know, growing up, but she, she done well for us now. He was the breadwinner then, you know, because Ma didn't work. She was a housewife. Well, she had two young twin daughters to bring up. Myself and my brother, we were... We could nearly look after ourselves, more or less, you know, but except for feeding ourselves, you know. We were running about here, there and everywhere most of the time, like, but... It was hard for Ma now because... Uh, no partner like to share in anything. Uh, she would have to bottle up her emotions, you know, in front of us and stuff, just so that we'd be okay, you know. The 17th of May, for me, is just something that's part of my life that I will never be able to step away from. It was only a few moments. It was... But for me and many survivors... You just can't step away from that. You, you go on and you live your life. 
you get days where you just want to shake it and get away from it and it all gets too much some days and there was mothers and fathers had to go home to raise children on their own and there was no help for them it's horrific for all those who were affected 34 people lost their lives that day pregnant women one whole family wiped out it was absolutely a horrific event and nothing was done at the time and then the victims and the survivors the victims families and the survivors had to pick up the pieces and try and find out the truth as, as to what happened that day I think that's equally as horrific for the families and the survivors as to what happened to them because it shouldn't have been left to us to go and find out what happened we need to know the truth so that we can close the door on that day we have a continuous struggle on our hands to get the government to take responsibility and to do what they should have done in 1974. And I think just in, in the name of fairness that they should do that for us at least. They should find out the truth as to what happened that day for us. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.